This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, but a Bite Size Business Breakfast special. We are introducing what we hope will be a new business breakfast tradition, and that is Christmas guest hosts in that strange little period between Christmas and New Year where you're not quite sure what day it is and you're still eating all the cheese. The first ever Christmas guest host is and has been Professor Dame Heather McGregor, pilot, academic, columnist, author, Edinburgh Fringe star, and so much more besides. She is the Provost and Vice Principal of Harriet Watt University here in Dubai. We are joined now by a woman who is not unfamiliar with the Japanese markets. Uh, We have something a little different for you this week, that weird fallow week between Christmas and New Year's where you might be at work but you're not really working, no one really knows what day it is, you're still eating all that cheese that Rami's been selling, Um, people are sort of drifting in and out of cheese comas uh, and it's not really a real week. So we've decided to, and let's be honest about this, take some of the pressure off us um, during what is also generally a very slow news week and bring in a series of guest co-presenters, uh, people who have had interesting careers um, to have them go through the issues of the day with us but also to discuss their careers and I tell you the career of the woman who is kicking off what I think will become a business breakfast tradition um, has had quite the career indeed she is a former investment banker including in Japan she's an FT columnist and writes and has written for a number of papers of note she is an author Uh, she has been a successful business owner she now runs what controversially we could call a successful business she is uh, not a million miles away from here the provost and vice principal of Harriet Watt University in Dubai has been the executive dean of Edinburgh Business School she knows a thing or two about an MBA she's got one she's also got a PhD a CBE a DBE a pilot's license Uh, she's an academic she is technically also a chartered accountant um, and In your spare time, Edinburgh Fringe and Off-Broadway star. Somehow, she has the time to spend a few hours with us this morning. Uh, Professor Dame Heather McGregor, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brandy. It's always very interesting to hear other people introduce you. I sit here thinking, golly, I, I sound interesting. I almost want to meet myself. We're super happy to have you with us. We're really excited about getting your take um, on some of the stories that have been, we won't say dominating the papers, because if you look at the British tabloids, it's been people complaining that they didn't get their turkey, but instead got a bag of turkey-shaped nuggets. Um, But there is quite a lot still going on in the world. And we also want to learn a little bit more about you this morning, talking through everything from your Argoside Edinburgh Fringe show uh, to the Mrs Money Penny years. All of that to come. But you've come into the studio first off with props. So let's actually start with Christmas. We've just had Rami from Joy Gifts in talking to Richard about the appetite for cheese gifting at Christmas. Who knew? I did order a cheese platter yesterday. Did you have a cheese platter at home yesterday? Yeah, I had some Wensleydale and cranberry. I got, funny enough, I did get gifted. We don't really like the verbification of nouns, but we are letting that no. one slide this morning. My pet hate too. I heard Richard say that earlier and I thought, yeah, you know what? He's on the money. I tip my number one pet hate of that is network. Oh. Never make network into a verb. Do you know what? I, one I heard quite a lot 
last month on my on my wellness retreat the use of the noun journal as a verb. Journaling. Oh, journaling. No, <laughs> a journal's a thing. <laughs> a network is a thing too, by the way. And it's a noun and you you build a network or you support a network or you leverage a network, but you do not do networking. And yet that has become, I would argue, quite a standard term of phrase. Not anything to do with me. <laughs> Not anything to do with you. Uh, gifting has kind of come into the lexicon here. I get very upset by podiuming at the Olympics, funny enough, if we've all got our pet hates. Summiting a mountain? <laughs> no! <laughs> uh, all to come on the business breakfast this morning, but tell us why you have brought in a stack of business books. Well, I did some self-gifting this year. Ah, I- you just did it! Yes, yes. Well, I do believe that gifting is probably is actually a verb. But I don't, as I said, I did some self I gave myself, there you are, that's better. I gave myself some gifts. And actually what I do is during the year, I don't, I just, when I hear something or I read something I want to read, I just tag it online. And then when it comes to four weeks before Christmas, I just press buy. So actually, I've probably forgotten by then what I tagged in February or March. So it is quite a surprise when it turns <laughs> up. Um, and I was quite shocked when the five books arrived this week to find that four of them were business books. OK, well, let's start with a bit of a business breakfast, business book Christmas club then, if you like, the BBBBCBC, <laughs> um, and have a look at what you are recommending for a read. I gave, funny enough, we did the Swedish thing on Christmas Eve um, and I think Icelandic as well, Scandinavian where you give each other um, Christmas Eve books and, and sit around in our case eating lasagna and reading. And More cheese. Business, yes, business books and that. Tell me what's there. Um, so as I said, it was a bit of a surprise when it turned up this week. The first one is Losing the Signal, which is the story of Blackberry. I don't know about you, but I saw the Blackberry film. I think I saw it on a plane somewhere this week this year um and i of course it's based on a book i'd never read the book so when i saw it i thought i must buy and read the book usually books are much more authentic a storytelling than the film okay have you how have you dug into any of these yet i um, realize it's been less than 24 no, no, hours it is it is very early days it is only boxing day today um uh, but uh, you know i have seen the film so i know and, and i held the stock so i know what's coming <laughs> I, funnily enough, I got three. You do, yeah. We we know how this one ends. Um, I did get three chapters into one of the business books that were going around Christmas Eve. I gave it to someone else, and then I started reading it. It's probably bad form. Uh, Freezing Order by Bill Browder, which is about money laundering um, mm. and tales of intrigue. Weirdly blurbed by Stephen Fry, um, but does read like a Netflix thriller, and no doubt the movie is. Well, that will go to straight follow. into my list for next year then. Right. What's next? Um, well, next, we also know how this one ends so far, which is Elon Musk. But I mean, you know, never mind the quality, feel the width. Look at the size of this book. You know, this is a whopping book. Um, but again, um, we've already had the series that put up the BBC. So I, I pretty well know this story, too, and, and indirectly held the stock. So I think that it will be interesting. But I mean, I'm, I'm brave. I'm not braving that anytime soon. Have a look at that. I need a longer holiday. That could keep a door open, couldn't it? Mm, that's very serious, yes. Um, then we've got uh, Michael Lewis going infinite. So this is the story of Sam Bankman-Fried. 
And I think we know how that one ends too, or we almost know how it ends because he hasn't actually been sentenced yet. He's been found guilty, but not sentenced. Um, and we've also, since that, that, we've had the demise of Binance, or not the demise, but the fining mm. of Binance. So I think very interesting. I think crypto is, and again, going to be an interesting story for 24 anyway. So, I, I, and Michael Lewis had unbelievable access for this. I was about to say that. I mean, the first business book I think I ever read about shorting um, Lies Poker. Exactly. Was a uh, Michael Lewis book. Yeah, and, and you know, there are, I guess there are parallels between uh, Michael Lewis and yourself, Heather. Michael <laughs> Lewis. <laughs> well, I mean, there are, because Michael Lewis w- worked in investment <laughs> banking. He was a trader in, mm. uh, in London. And, he's American, but he's a trader in London and on Wall Street. I think it was Solomon Brothers yes. 30 years ago. But then... He said, actually, I want to be a writer and has written many business books. Moneyball, Liars Poker was his first one. And there are parallels with you, investment banking, but a writer for the Financial Times and others. I think the parallels stop at our bank accounts, actually. (laughs) (laughs) We will uh, start talking about Heather's career in about 10 minutes, but I want to know what this last book is. So the last book is a bit different. Um, uh, This is by a lady called Catalin Carrico, and it's called uh, My Life in Science, Breaking Through. She won the Nobel Prize for Medicine this year. And I had never heard of her. And when I did my research after reading that she won the Nobel Prize, I discovered that she'd written a book. Wow. So I thought, right, I tagged that. I'd better read that too. Uh, and, and especially now that I'm running a university with a lot of scientists, I thought this would be a good thing to read. Plus a woman, a woman winning the Nobel Prize for medicine. I quite like that. All right, well, there you go. That's Heather's book recommendations. I bought a consultant friend when McKinsey comes to town, which he said he's going to be reading on the Dubai to Riyadh Express quite prominently. Um, I'm not sure how much McKinsey love it. It's quite the controversial (laughs) tale. More to come. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. We've got a guest in the studio and we'll have for the next couple of hours in what is set to become a business breakfast tradition. Is it a tradition if you're doing it for the first time? We are bringing in guest co-hosts for the fellow week between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, Not just asking them to help us make sense of the world and business papers, but uh, to go through their careers as well and see what we can learn from their success. And our guest this morning has had a very, very large amount of success in her career so far, whether that is in business, whether that is in academia, whether that is in journalism, uh, from podcasting to, to columns to books, um, whether that is as a uh, Edinburgh Fringe and Off-Broadway star, a little bit of a, a, a curveball there. But we are going to start talking about, as Richard um, has intimated a little earlier this morning, um, about her financial career first. She is Professor Dame uh, Heather McGregor. She is a woman who has reinvented herself multiply over the years. She is currently the Provost and Vice Principal of Harriet Watt University in Dubai, coming to us fresh from Scotland, where she was the Executive Dean of Edinburgh Business School in her academia career. Heather, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brandy and Richard. Lovely to be here. Hard to know where to start with you because there have been so many reinventions um, and and twists and turns in your career. But I actually want to start with your own university results, which, ironic given the post that you hold now, um, were not what you'd wanted. And you didn't get into the university that you wanted either. It was my school results that were not what I wanted. And I didn't get into my first university of choice. That's correct. Um, and uh, I 
sort of moped around and um, spent a bit of time applying to other universities that I might be able to get into until somebody grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and said, for goodness sake, just redo the school exams and then you'll have more choice. And so I thought, you know what, I'll do that. You redid your A-levels? I redid my A-levels. How, at the time though, because you strike me as someone, and like I said, the fact that you've had half a dozen plus careers so far today, I didn't even mention your career, uh, your television career there, um, did that not feel like slowing yourself down? Well, I really decided to take a gap year because I didn't have any choice because I was not, I hadn't got in to, to where I was meant to be going. So actually, having decided to do a gap year, I did the A-level, redid the A-levels very quickly. I did them in the December. So I, I took them unsuccessfully in the June and redid them in the December and it was a much better result the second time around. And yet, your first career in advertising was a fairly brief one. Well, on and off, it was it was advertising and communications, and it lasted five years because I had to put myself through my master's degree, and I had to pay for that. So I, I, I did it while working in communications. Um, and I got there finally at 30, where I had an MBA, and I could change career. Which you changed to? And I became a stockbroker or an investment banker, you'd call it these days. What? Tell us what that was, was like at the time. What, years, what year are we talking here? Uh, we're talking 1992 and it, things were very different to now. Uh, it was very unusual f- to be a woman and, and especially one starting so late. Most people went straight into the city at 22. And you know what? I should have done that. I should absolutely have done that. When I was 13, somebody explained to me the relationship, the, the inverse relationship between the rate of interest and the price of bonds. And I was completely hooked. And I should have known then that, you know, I should have just gone straight to the city at 22. So an inverse yield curve got you. Yeah, absolutely. And still does. I mean, I'm always looking at bond yields. You know, it is, it is a daily fixation. So how were you treated as you rocked up a little bit older than everybody else? Um, with some dis- dismay, I have to say, uh, I remember being asked at my job interview, um, uh, you know, why they should employ me because I would presumably be getting married and having a baby. And I took that about three times. And then I think the third time I said, look, I won't be doing that because I've already got married and I already have a baby. At which point I was then asked what my husband did for a living and how much money he earned. And when I asked how that was remotely relevant, they said that that was because they wanted to know if um, I would be playing at this, if this was a, you know, a pin money thing or whether I was serious. How did you convince them you were serious? Um, well, I'd, I'd, I'd already long before that taken off my wedding ring, as you can see, and um, don't wear one because I was terrified of not being taken seriously. And uh, the I, I said, you know, you've just got to give me a... a give me a break and um, and show me. And I also, I got a client of theirs to recommend me. And I think that was the killer move. Okay. So quite a distinguished and interesting um, career in investment banking that took you uh, to a number of different financial centres, Hong Kong, Singapore and Tokyo. What was the highlight? Well, Tokyo is the next, moving to live in Tokyo is the closest possible experience that any of us will ever have to landing on Mars. Because uh, because it is so different, and also this was twenty five years ago, you know. And it, you know, if you wanted to any uh, road signs that remotely looked English, you know, you were only in the very middle of Tokyo. So it, it, the whole thing is just completely different. It's totally different culture to anywhere else in the world. So what have you learned? We've got about a minute with you before we uh, have to go to the news headlines. What from those days in investment banking, in advising people of what they should be you know, buying and trading and all the rest of it, um, still serves you in your life today? What have you taken from that? Um, that it's something that should be delegated to other people. 
And that's the number one thing I have absolutely learned. Um, you know, and if you're not in that market, living it and breathing it every day, then if you're doing it as a hobby, then you know what? The, it's a hobby. Assign some money to it and do it as a hobby. I do, I do that as well, by the way. But if you're serious about and this is what you need to live on for the rest of your life, my goodness me, you need to be allocating it to other people who are in that market and breathing it every day. All right. So that was my question. You've held up some business books this morning about Elon Musk, about BlackBerry and talked about owning the stock or having owned the stock. Do you do your own stuff or not? I do do my own stuff, but what I also do is I watch what other people are doing with it. So lots of people contribute to a pension or contribute to mutual funds and don't necessarily watch to see what they're holding. So when I said I, for instance, in, in the form of Tesla, you know, I own Scottish Morgan Investment Trust, which owned in, in its own right Tesla. So you have to just be aware of what you're investing in, even if you're investing in mutual funds. Right. We've been discussing your career this morning. You're moving to investment banking in Japan, which you managed to pick up what we would now call a side hustle whilst doing that. Um, Answering the phone to the Financial Times, why did they call you? Um, They called me because they were launching a magazine in the UK, in the UK only, on a Saturday as a supplement. uh, And they wanted to know if I would write a column every single week um, for them. 900 words they wanted every week. This is 1999. Yes. And that column became known as Mrs. Moneypenny. As Richard, um, I know, was keen to find out in the ad break, you told us earlier that for your investment banking career, you removed your wedding ring after questions about how much your husband earned and therefore how much really you needed to earn and whether or not you were taking it seriously. Why Mrs. Moneypenny? Um, Well, actually, that was completely allocated to me by the Financial Times. uh, they called me and asked me to write this column and I said I couldn't possibly do that. I was um, working for an investment bank and um, the thought that I might author a column in the Financial Times at the same time seemed to me a high degree of conflict. So they said, oh, it's OK, we'll give you a pseudonym. So, and they just allocated it to me. So that, that was literally, I mean, I had no say on what the pseudonym was, what the byline was. And the other thing they promised me was it would only appear in print, not online, and it would only appear in the United Kingdom, So, which was true. That's, they kept their promise for about a year. So the, the, it, it did only appear, and that, those, those original columns from Japan, they are only available actually in the book form because you can't find them online. And the, the Mrs. Moneypenny columns have become several books. Several books, yes. Uh, plus several books of, of financial and life advice. I am, though, looking um, at those that did find you a, a wider audience, um, writing about everything over the years, um, about millennials versus boomers. Um, <laughs> give your gardener feedback and your nanny a bonus um, about being a good employer, even whether or not you should skip the post-flight Shower. How did you decide what to write about? How much of a steer did the Financial Times give you? Well, at the beginning, they, they gave me a very specific steer. They said they wanted me to write about being a woman in the workplace um, every single week, 900 words. Well, I could write um, about that for about 400 words one week. And uh, I just think it was an, even 25 years ago, this was a non-story, okay? Uh, I was a woman, I worked. You know what, there have been women working since before the age of time. So I wasn't, didn't feel I could do that. And I said, anyway, I was too busy to write a column for them. I was 
in Japan, running an investment bank, 220 people, of which 200 Japanese. Um, and the, there was no way. I had three children, the youngest of which was six months old. You know, I could not possibly churn out 900 words a week. You must be kidding. And, um, and so I just said no. Um, you turned down the FT? I turned down the FT, yes. And then they rang up again and said, and then I suddenly thought, mm, I was working for ABN AMRO at the time. I thought, mm, ABN AMRO, the Financial Times, which one's likely to last longer? So I, I then I then agreed. But what I said, well, I'd write you a couple of dummies. So a dummy, of course, is something that you write not expecting it to be published. It's just an illustration of what you can write. So I sent two dummies through and they said, just write about your life then. So, OK, fine. I'll write about my life. I sent them two dummies um, and they rang back and said, we're cooking with gas. I remember that word. We're cooking with gas. And of course, one of the things that you wrote about at length, and in fact, I bumped into you at breakfast the other morning and one of the women with me knew exactly who you were she said oh yes mrs Moneypenny," and she referenced this and it is in my experience one of the things that stays with people about your columns is how you referred to your children as cost centers number one two and three Yes. Oh, well, this, of course, um, is because all my children have been earnings diluting from day one. And I defy anybody listening to this who's at a family to tell me otherwise. Uh, um, unless you, of course, you know, you happen to have, you know, I don't know, Macaulay Culkin or something. You know, somebody who's going to go out there and earn a ton of money before they're 10 years old. I, I really think that children are a great... Everyone tells you that you won't get any sleep. Everybody tells you that you'll love them in a way that you can't possibly understand until you have them. Nobody tells you how expensive it's going to be. You you made quite a lot of that metaphor, running a family being like running a, a business. And that absolutely true. And also you could tell from the fact that I called them cost centres one, two and three right back then that I was just a, a management accountant wanting to be one, you know. And eventually when I did qualify as a management accountant only last year, uh, I, I, you know, finally realised my dream. Um, but the truth is, yes, I, I did look at every single facet of my life as if it was a business. How did that go down with your family? Well, I had a strict rule about it. You know, if if you didn't want to get written about, you weren't spending the proceeds of the writing. So if it, it was quite... I mean, there were some things that happened in my life I didn't write about, and I wouldn't be airing them on the radio either. <laughs> but, I, but I did think that it was, you know, fair game, actually. Um, and when, interestingly, when I took... Uh, when I made Mrs Moneypenny into a stage show, uh, my husband has never ever come to see me perform more on the stage show in just a second do you know quickly before we get there what your most read column was I don't know actually what my most read column was I know from Japan it was probably the one about going to a love hotel okie doke do do we have to leave it there no no but I'll just tell you one technical thing about Japanese love hotels so obviously Jap uh, Japanese uh, people is very very limited accommodation everybody lives with their families in very tiny and you know not enormous compounds okay, so yes yeah. so they they you go and you rent a hotel room um, by the hour but actually the first t the first block is two hours and when you walk into the hotel room as you unlock the door the Geiger counter on the wall starts with 120 and clicks down to 119 and it's on the wall in very large <laughs> no, for the whole time you're in that room. No pressure. No pressure. Did you ever write anything you regretted? Um, I don't do regret. I think a bit like guilt, it's a wasted emotion. Um, so I learned from some of the things I wrote, yes. You mentioned the stage show there and it is 
quite incredible. There's not many investment bankers who end up at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. No, but the point about the Edinburgh Fringe, which was started after the war, is that there is no barrier of quality. So you, the, the Edinburgh Festival itself started by inviting about eight organisations back in the late 1940s to come to Edinburgh and perform. And all the other people that were not invited were so cross that they just went to Edinburgh and booked a venue and put on their own shows. And that's what the Fringe was. And so literally there are three and a half thousand shows that go and get put on during the Fringe in August in Edinburgh and there is no quality barrier. So any investment banker could go. Going to the Edinburgh Fringe though, taking that column and making it a one-woman show at home with Mrs Moneypenny, not on a stage, Heather, but in an Argo showroom. Yeah, so for those of you listening who don't know what an Argo is, it's a cooker that's on all day. It's probably the most non-environmentally friendly cooker you could buy I suspect and uh, the but but these days they do make them in electricity and various things and they do time them they can switch on and off but the concept of it was it was on all the time and it was made of cast iron it was originally Swedish and I liked the idea of performing in a kitchen because the, 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 the conceit was it was my kitchen. You were coming in as the audience into my kitchen and that you would get offered food, which you did do, by the way, drink and food uh, while you were there. So that, apart from anything else, Brandy, that actually uses up an hour. So if you've got to perform for 55 minutes and you can serve food for at least 10 of it, um, that actually uses up time. Did you... So you were at the stage an investment banker with a, a column. Um, and I know doing the odd guest appearance here and there... But to a one-woman show is something else. Yes, it, it really is. And and I had I had quit investment banking in two thousand and and um, and set up you know, and bought my own company and I was running my own company. That's how I could afford to take a month off work and move to Edinburgh for a month, which is, by the way, also very earnings diluting. Uh, renting accommodation in Edinburgh during August when three and a half thousand shows are going there is really difficult. And we moved the whole family to Edinburgh for a whole month, um, and that. That then what you have to do is, you know, I was performing every day at 12 noon on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. And then on Friday, Saturday and Sunday, I was 12 noon and four o'clock. So eight performances a week of exactly the same material. You, you, you know, the first week you're sort of still learning it. The second week you're really getting in your stride. The third week you think you could, you know, run the place. And the fourth week you're like, is, do I really have to do this again? And the the truth is, though, everybody who sees you perform, for them, it's their first time. And their money and their ticket is exactly as valid as the person yesterday or next week. So you have to be consistent. Why did you want to do it in the first place? I think I wanted to see if the material would work outside of the written word. I really did. The joke was that I actually just wanted a free holiday in Edinburgh for my family for a month. And by, by the money that came in from the show was redistributed to my landlord. <laughs> you took it from Edinburgh to off-Broadway. Yeah, that was a bit of a shock, I have to say. Not least of which because no Argus showroom in New York, not a working one. There is a place you can buy Argus in New York, but not one where they have a working demonstration kitchen. So I performed in a real theatre uh, with no Argus and no props and no food. Um, and they wanted it an hour and 15 minutes. So not, I didn't have to just invent another 10 minutes of material to cover the food. I had to invent an hour and a quarter's material. You know, I mean, really was quite phenomenal. So what my, my way of getting around that was I, I did the show for about 40 minutes and then I switched the lights on and invited the audience to ask me questions. And that's how I got through about 15 minutes of it. Did what f- sounds like a very British sort of 
show, the Arga and, 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 and the, the rest of it, translate to the American audience? Did you have to change it? I had to change some of the material um, and you learn as you go along. Uh, I, on the very first opening evening, um, I, I was a bit nervous about my opening night in New York. So I had persuaded a very famous hairdresser friend of mine called Frederic Fakai to do my hair. So he had done my hair in the morning. And that evening I opened the show, first show, Good evening, New York. You know, I'm I'm so pleased to see you. I have to tell you, I'm so excited to see you. I went and had my hair done by Frederic Fakai. Now, this is a household name in America. And they were all gripped by this. And then we carried on. Anyway, I switched on the lights after 40 minutes and said, right, you know, any, ask me anything. Thinking they're going to ask me how did the column start? You know, what did my children mind being written about? All the things that other people ask. And the very first question, how much did your haircut cost? How much did your haircut cost? It was free because it was he was a friend of mine. And what I hadn't realised was what it would have cost. So I went back for a blow dry again a couple of days into the run and I asked to see the price list. And in 2010, to get your hair cut and dried by Frederick Frikai was $750 US. Um, I can understand why someone wanted to know. <laughs> Speaking of spending or not spending... Your performance career, if you like, um, has involved hosting a show in the the UK called Super Scrimpers, um, where you taught people to save money, thrifty tips, live frugally, etc. While wearing a Hermes scarf. I was going to say, if anyone's listening to you this morning, they'll notice you've got a very nice accent indeed. How did the UK take thrifty tips from someone wearing Hermes? Well, it went to nine series. Which is really quite phenomenal. And then I I got a couple of guest spots. Uh, I captained my uh, university's team on University Challenge um, as a result of that. And I did Celebrity Come Dine With Me. And those were all off the back of three years of, of making thrifty tip television and while presenting it in a Hermes scarf. And I, I have to say it was not, again, it was an accident. Um, my girlfriend Meryn Somerset Webb who is a, was a columnist in the FT and uh, and who is now a columnist at Bloomberg very serious financial columnist had tested out for this show and they said to her well we only really want you the, if the path to the pilot if you get Heather McGregor to work with you so I ended up co-presenting with her for the first series and then she was let go this was this was nearly the end of the friendship actually and I I, I said I'm not doing it without her and my agent just read the riot act. He said, do you want to go down in history as a woman who only ever did one television series? You, you get right back out there. We're going to find out more about how Dame Heather not just had a television pilot, but also is a pilot. And of course, how she became a dame. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. I'm going to try and cram quite a lot of career into the next eight minutes. Not my career, uh, the career of Professor Dame Heather McGregor. She is um, our guest star this morning, something we're doing all through the week between Christmas and New Year. Um, her office is down the road, Provost and Vice Principal of Harriet Watt University, Dubai. But my goodness, as we have learnt this morning, um, there have been many, many, many pivots to this career. Heather, thank you for being with us this morning. It's a great joy. So I am going to squish an awful lot of life into a very small amount of time um, because your business career, which is worthy of a show in itself, joining the recruitment firm that originally headhunted you and then going on to own it, how quickly can you tell us about that? I don't, I'm not even going to call that a pivot. I'm going to call it, call it a takeover. 
Um, yes, well, it was a reverse takeover. I, I, I joined the company in 2000. Um, I had rung them up and tried to buy them, and they said, how about working here first? This so, is the people who placed you as an investment banker? Yeah, the banker. people who placed me, I was 23, and I'd always wanted to buy the company. Um, when, I, when, I, when I met them when I was 23, I thought, you know what, forget the job they were sending me to, which was in, as we discussed, in marketing and advertising. I want to buy this company. And it took me a very long time, but eventually I did. And I joined them in 2000. I bought 20% in 2002 and the rest in 2004. Um, and the, the trick was to make myself so indispensable that in the end, when I said, I want to buy the rest of the company, and they said, well, we're not sure about it. And I said, well, you know what? If you don't sell to me, I'm probably leaving. Why did you want to own a headhunting company? It wasn't as I wanted to own a headhunting company. I would have owned dry cleaners if, if, if it would work. I, mean, I really just wanted to own my own company. I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I didn't want to have to start in my garage, you know, Bill Gates style. I wanted to buy something that was up and running. I was, you know, 38 years old when I joined the company and 42 when I bought it. I didn't feel that I had the time to start again from scratch. And then you gave it away. Yeah, well, that was because 16 years later, I was offered an amazing opportunity to join Harriet Watt University as a fully tenured professor. This is something that doesn't happen to very many people in their lives. It was a really once in a lifetime. And it was my dream to become an academic one day. When I got my PhD, you know, I never crossed the stage. I never went to my graduation ceremony. But I bought the gown and hung it in my wardrobe as a daily reminder that one day I wanted to be an academic. And the first time I took that gown out was after I joined Harry Watt University for graduation. Let's go back to giving the company away, though, because I'm presuming you could have made quite a bit of money selling it. Yes, but to sell a company like that, you have to do an earn out. And, uh, which you know means that you get some of the money up front, but then you stay in the company um, over a period of time, usually two to three years, and you make sure that the company meets its its objectives and its financial objectives. And Golden then you handcuffs. Get, yeah, well, you, yeah. I mean, you you need to be in there. You know, this company didn't have any assets beyond a, a database and a lot of goodwill. Um, it had a very strong brand name. The company is over forty years old and still going strong. So it, it clearly it existed for a long time before I bought it, and it will exist for a long time afterwards. And you gave it to the staff, effectively. I, gave, I gifted it to the staff, yes. Um, that's not as easy as you would think in the United Kingdom because if I give you a present and I am not married to you, that's the only basis on which you can give something free of tax is if you are married to somebody. And if I'm not married to you and I gift you something of any value, you will be taxed on it. Um, and there was a very, very little-known clause in the 2014 Finance Act in the UK that made it possible to give your company to your staff, provided you met certain conditions. And I wrote my own tax clearance for HMRC. As you do. Now, two of the things that you did um, around the, the headhunting space, as it were, Taylor Bennett, by the way, is the company that we're speaking about, um, was to set up the Taylor Bennett Foundation and to set up the 30% Club. Both acts that have had massive ripple on effects for for women and for minorities seeking employment mm. well the, fir the first thing the Taylor Bennett Foundation you know the, the person dialing in asked uh, am I rich well one of the reasons I'm not rich is that I set up my own charitable foundation and diverted most of the profits of the company to it for the length of the time that I was running that company and that helps minority ethnic graduates in the United Kingdom get their first jobs and nowadays there are hundreds of people going through that foundation but to be absolutely clear I'm not a trustee, I still give it money and I still occasionally help with a couple of things, but it is an entirely independent thing. And it is
is a much bigger legacy for me than the actual company itself. Um, the 30% Club, of course, was absolutely not my idea. Helena Morrissey invited 50 of us to lunch in the summer of 2010 and said, I've had enough of only 12% of women on boards. And, you know, if, you, if you'd like to help me, please stay in the room. And 38 people got up and left. So there were 12 of us left in the room. And that's how the 30% Club got started. Why do you think so many people left? I think they thought it was controversial, that it, that it wasn't seen to be a politically acceptable thing to do to campaign for women on boards. A lot of the women in the room, it was all women in the room. Can I start mention that? 50 women. Uh, I think a lot of the women in the room felt their professional lives would be affected by being publicly identified with us. These days, of course, you know, I mean, everybody wants to on a 30% bandwagon and it, and it's very successful. It had a, it's had a chapter here in the UAE since 2015. You know, I mean, it's really been a successful global campaign. I'm very glad I was there at the beginning. And those acts, amongst others, are the reasons that you have got an awful lot of letters after your name. You've had the CBE for some time. The CBE actually was for services to business and diversity in the workplace. And it was specifically for the Taylor Bennett Foundation and the 30% Club. And when you get a further honour, nothing you've done before that first honour can count. Okay. So the damehood, the DBE. So the DBE, it's very interesting, you know, when people meet me and, you know, I've only, I was created a dame just under a year ago. So it was really quite recent. And the one question that grates on me is when people meet me and say, so, so why did you get a damehood? And it's honestly, it's like, if you're listening to this and you meet me again, please don't ask me this question. It's so gr- awful to have to answer. So I usually answer now, I have a default position. I say, do you want to know what the citation was? And I say the citation was for services to education, to business and to heritage in Scotland. And that is why I was given a DBE a year ago. Did they phone you or write you a letter? Um, they sent me a letter that was attached to an email. Now, you should know that I served on the UK government's honours committee for six years, choosing who would be dames and knights. OK, so I had just just stepped down from that when I was appointed. And I had no idea how they got this through. And I got a letter from the Cabinet Office. And do you know, Brandy, I thought it was about my expenses. <laughs> and so I didn't actually open it for a bit. Um, I got it on, on UAE National Day, 1st of December last year. Uh, and I... eventually I opened it and it said, you know, the Prime Minister would like to recommend to the King. And I thought, wow, I'm glad I opened that. I understand that you had to be almost talked into it by a friend, though. Yeah, I have to say that you do get a a, a slight sense of, you know, um, you know, why me? Um, I, I mean, yes, I've had the opportunity to make a lot of impact in my life, which has been an amazing, but all of those opportunities were given to me by others. And it is you have to walk through the door and take the opportunity, but they were given to me by others. So you do think, you know, this is a bit tricky. And I do, I have one very good girlfriend uh, who I turn to in moments like I'm going to make your name drop. You know that, okay. don't you? Well, yeah. So this is the wife of our former Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, Sarah Brown, who is herself the most amazing deliverer of educational charity activity around the world. Um, and she lost her first uh, daughter when uh, soon after she was born. And on the back of that, Sarah has created a worldwide educational phenomenon. Uh, it's called Their World. And she said to me, don't be ridiculous. You know what? You're not getting this for just for you. You're getting it for all the people associated with you. you know, get a grip. You've got 40 seconds actually receiving the damehood. Um, it's on the 17th of January, my investiture. I haven't been yet. Oh, I'm still frantically having a hat made. In just a few moments, we're going to find out how you actually do decide uh, what to wear when you are being 
What's the well, term? I'm having the dress and the jacket made here in Dubai, but I've not yet, and anyone can point me to a, a correct milliner in Dubai. So <laughs> that is being made by uh, by Rachel Trevor Jones, who, in case you didn't notice on the family's uh, royal family's walkabout on at Sandringham yesterday, there were lots of her creations on display, and I've had to freight the fabric to her. Goodness gracious! More on this to come. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we are looking for our final segment this morning with our first ever Christmas guest co-presenter, Professor Dame Heather McGregor is in. She's the Provost and Vice Principal of Harriet Watt University, Dubai. She is also and has also been an investment banker, FT columnist, author, Edinburgh Fringe and Off-Broadway star, successful business owner, uh, pilot, academic, MBA, PhD, CBE, DBE. And we are... Nowhere near, I imagine, the end of her career. I can imagine that there is a humongous amount more to come. But we are going to have a look at the bit that she is doing now, which is running the university that is just down the road from us, our near neighbour, Harriet Watt. Heather, what on earth made you want to move out here to be with us? Um, well, I always thought this was a, the place to be, to be honest. I mean, I've been travelling out here for 30 years since I was a, a, a young stockbroker broking to the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. And it, it's always fascinated me about how well they've run their economies out here. I mean, even in the worst times, you know, the, the recession, the COVID, you know, there has been a long-term view of the people with their hand on the tiller. And that is such a refreshing change from having a sort of three to four year investment cycle between elections that you get in other parts of the world. So I had always wanted to come and live here. Why did actually the bigger question might be why from someone who had run a successful business, been an investment banker, um, regular Davos goer, you know, a a proper fixture in business and finance, think, you know what, what I actually want to do is to go into the fusty old halls of academia. Well, I didn't become an academic, a full-time academic, until I was 54. And I had taken the precaution of getting a PhD along the way, which is a very useful thing to have in your back pocket. Um, and I, I really, really wanted one day to to work as a full-time academic. You know, it, it, working, at, for instance, at the Taylor Bennett Foundation, you can influence hundreds of lives, but I measure my satisfaction in impact. And uh, working in higher education, you can influence thousands and thousands of lives for the better. I would never have had the chance, for instance, to set up uh, an MBA programme in a refugee camp if I hadn't come to Harriet Watt. I mean, that, that to me has been, you know, those kind of really special things. Tell me, and, and that is something I did want to, to talk to you about because that is something quite extraordinary that you have done out of out of Dubai. Yes, and and it and it's and it's done here out of Dubai. And in fact, the first person to graduate crossed the stage uh, just under a year ago. The, what we do is we develop a lot of our materials to be asynchronous, which means you don't actually have to be online in real time. Um, and we developed all of our MBA materials to be asynchronous, so that if for any reason you have to break off your education and stop and start, you can take it with you. You can study it in an oil rig at three a.m. Whatever. And that has enabled us to put it into a refugee camp where both the internet connection and indeed the electricity, by the way, are not very reliable. So the fact that you can preload it onto a computer and hand it to somebody. And of course, everybody said, what are you doing that for? You know, they'll sell the computers. Well, they didn't do that. It'd be ridiculous. This is an investment in their education. And a lot of people in refugee camps have had their education interrupted. How wide could that go as a, uh, as a scheme? Tell me what you've managed to do so far and how much further you could take it. 
Um, well, it's it's gone as far it's it's been funded. It takes funding. I mean, we can't do it for free, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it takes someone to fund it, and it's been very generously funded up to this point um, by some philanthropists, a philanthropic foundation in the Netherlands, interestingly. Um, but yes, I mean, you know, we've only so far we're only doing it in one camp in the Lebanon. I, mean, I would love to be in in other parts, and who knows about you know the current conflict means that there's probably going to be need to be a lot more of this in the future. Let's have a talk about where you are today. Um, you were saying to, to Rich and, and I before we began talking that you think that this year is going to be an absolute banner year um, for further education in the UAE. Why is that? Um, of course, the UAE is, is rightly now famous for its schools. You know, there used to be a time when there were very few primary schools here and then very few secondary schools. And now I think we have some of the best secondary schools in the region, in, in, in some parts of it, the world, frankly. Uh, and that is what I think will happen now with tertiary education. We are going to get the finest universities in the world. We already see that here. I, I run the biggest international university in the UAE by student numbers. Um, I have 5,000 students. But this year we'll see eight new um international universities opening in Dubai, let alone the UAE, for for sake. And this is because, of course, Dubai have set out its stall very, very clearly in D33. They want more international universities here. They want world beating. You put that together with the fact that so many countries, the UK included, I might tell you, um, but Canada, Australia are bringing in visa restrictions. They don't want international students, it almost seems to me, which is quite extraordinary. So here, they're very open to international students and they really want them. Is that not more competition for you, though? It will be more competition. And do you know what? Competition is not a bad thing, Brandy. You have a lot of competition in theory, but you're still the number one talk show. And you didn't get that without effort and, and honing your skills. And that is what we will do as a university. It will make us even better. You've got also a lot of competition, you could argue, coming from the likes of AI, which is set to disrupt a, a huge amount of, of industries, let alone the way that education is delivered as a whole. What does that mean for you? I don't think that AI is going to do away with education or with jobs, actually. I think it will do away with the jobs of people who don't know how to use it. And that is what matters. You have to teach people how to use it, what it is good for, what it's not good for. And, uh, you know, and by the way, that also keeps you on your toes. If you don't want to be going to university and learning in exactly the same way as everybody has been done for hundreds of years, this has really forced us to develop new ways of assessment, new ways of thinking. And that's good for everybody. So what's next for you, Dame Heather, your career has seen a remarkable number of, of pivots. You've jammed an awful lot in. There is no way on earth you're done yet. What else do you still want to do? Um, well, I think I've got another book in me, or probably two, and, um, and, and that's the thing, I think, next. I'm signed here until July 2027, um, and I'm married to an Australian, as most people know, and I think the next step for me will be to a move to Australia. I have in fact, applied for a spousal visa, which costs 8,800 Australian dollars just to apply for. Um, And then another 5,000 Australian dollars to hire the lawyer to tell you where to fill in the form. And even though I have, um, I have to say this week on the 28th, it is my 35th wedding anniversary. But I still have to show beyond reasonable doubt that I am still in a loving relationship with consensual and emotional support. So I'm busy filling in all the forms to explain that that is still the case. Romance isn't dead, is it? (laughs) Down under. I've sent them, by the way, by way of evidence, a letter from Emirates Golf Club saying that we are joint members of the Emirates <laughs> Golf Club to prove that we still do things together. I literally had to do that. Chris May has written you a letter of recommendation, yes, has he? Yes, they have. 
It's absolutely brilliant. Um, before you do hop on um, any plane to Australia, though, you've got quite an important gig coming up in the next month. Yes, I'm, I'm going to receive my damehood um, at Hollywood in Edinburgh. I'm going back to Edinburgh for 48 hours to uh, receive that and then throw a lunch uh, for some of the people that have supported me in, in my academic journey because I, 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 the rules are quite strict. You can't be honoured for anything you did before you got the last honour. So this is only for things that I have done at Heriot Watt. Does the king give it to you? Um, they don't tell you deliberately who is going to give it to you. Um, my CBE was given to me by Prince William, actually, in December 2015. And they don't tell you until the morning. Uh, January the 17th in Scotland, I think the King will be at Sandringham. And anyway, he's only just been to Heriot University. He came and spent a couple of hours with us at the beginning of COP. So I really don't think I could expect the King. I'm, I suspect it will be Princess Anne, um, who famously uh, is the hardest working royal um, and who equally famously, if you look at all the newspapers, recycles all her clothes multiple times. I'm looking forward to seeing her in a dress she's worn before, I suspect, <laughs> on the 17th of January. Excellent. Professor Dame Heather McGregor, thank you very much. Thank you, Brandy. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.